you know, all the things that, that we um, have to struggle with in the prescribed fire world are, you know, are non-issues in, in the wildfire world. I can see clearly why federal and state fire managers choose the fire suppression model for managing fire because there's literally virtually no liability to that model. You know, the reality is that wildfires are, are doing the heavy lifting when it comes to fuels reduction in this country. And so the sooner we get to manage wildfire at the landscape scale, the better off we are. Welcome to episode 12, I think, of Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and today we're speaking with Will Harling, who is the executive director of the Mid-Klamath Watershed Council. Will and I spoke about a variety of topics, as is often the case on this podcast. Uh, we didn't really stick to anything in particular, but we spoke to his experiences of growing up in Northern California in a pretty fire-prone area, um, a bit of his experiences working with indigenous uh, fire practitioners in that area, the Yurok tribe and Karuk tribe and other indigenous tribes in that area. And we also spoke to uh, the particular topic or the topic that I was most excited to talk to him about was an idea that I'd heard him talk about on a webinar a couple months ago, which was in essence that we're placing a lot of liability on prescribed fire and on prescribed burning through uh, whether through regulation or permitting or any other sort of bureaucratic red tape. And yet we don't see a similar liability placed on wildfires, which in Will's perspective are growing less and less sort of natural as we've increased our fire suppression model, as we've continued to keep fire out of places that need fire. Uh, the fires that we're seeing now are very much unnatural and very much human caused um, in their severity and in their destruction. So I was excited to talk a little bit about that with Will and just talking about the discrepancies between the liabilities that we hold in prescribed fire versus a lack of liability in the ways that we're suppressing fires and in the practices that are exacerbating uh, our wildfire seasons and making them more severe. So as always, uh, Will is a lot more articulate on this matter, and so I'll let him take it from here. But I appreciate you guys listening and following along and sharing the podcast and would love to ask you guys to review Life with Fire on Apple if you get the chance, or maybe subscribe on Spotify or um, Apple Podcasts, and continue sharing with people that you think might be interested or anybody that you know that's uh, particularly interested in wildfire. So without further ado, I will let Will take it from here, and uh, thanks for listening. So I was born and raised in Forks of Salmon here in, in the, the Salmon River, which is a tributary to the Klamath and, uh, you know, experienced the, the rise of mega fires in the West. We had a literally a front row seat. You know, some of my earliest memories are of burnouts from behind the log cabin I was born in on McNeil Creek and, and Forks of Salmon there. And so, you know, it, I really came to fire through trying to understand why we're losing our salmon in particular our you know one of the last wild runs of spring chinook salmon in california and you know on that journey it basically led me to the need to restore our relationship to fire um, in particular you know fire exclusion and fire suppression policies and we were i was lucky enough to you know be born in a land where you know the tribes that are here, the Karuk, the Yurok, and the Hoopa, the three largest tribes in California, 
still retain a, a large piece of their traditional knowledge and um, you know for the good of humanity are are sharing that with us so we can fix how we manage fire on the landscape and so um, you know I went to Humboldt State University you know got got a bachelor's in biology uh, and when I came back to the rivers um, you know I I wanted to support that role of restoring our salmon runs and bringing fire back to the landscape and so uh, we started having community meetings and formed the Mid Klamath Watershed Council in 2001, 2002, and, and got our 501c3 status. And we went from, you know, two hippies in my guest bedroom to 70 employees and, you know, doing incredible work up and down the rivers. And, you know, uh, the reality is I can only take a very small piece of the credit for that because I work with an, an amazing group of people that are in it for the right reasons. And, you know, really at its heart is you know we're reconnecting people to the land uh, and building community at the same time that we're restoring our in-stream and upslope environments um and then what kind of inspired you i guess you just kind of explained it but what what kind of inspired you to get involved and begin the um mid klamath watershed council well, you know, the reality is these beautiful forests in the Klamath Mountains can't be managed on four-year political terms. You know, we need people who are connected to place and in it for the long term to be the institutional memory of the land. Uh, and, and, you know, because really, you know, Native people manage this landscape for thousands of years, and that's reflected in their management techniques. Unfortunately, Western science, you know, takes a snapshot of, a, you know, a three to five year master's student paper or a, or a doctoral thesis. And, you know, it, we, we basically get a skewed understanding of the land and, and how to manage it. And so, you know, I've had just so many instances of watching poor land management in this country that resulted in the, the loss of diversity, the loss of life, um, you know, and so, you know, really starting the Mid Klamath Watershed Council was, was, you know, the goal is to, you know, connect our communities, both native and non-native people to stewarding this land in a long-term sustainable way. Awesome. And how much of that has, uh, is it, is it a fire organization or is it sort of a connectivity of aquatics and wanting to save the watershed and fire i mean everything's connected obviously but i'm i'm curious like kind of where the uh is there a line or is it all kind of connected for you yeah i mean it's all connected you know we uh we run a community center in orleans um that uh, and we have a community and stewardship program where we do a lot of watershed education in the schools we have a plants program where we're you know, getting rid of invasive species and, and forwarding uh, native species. Um, we have a fish habitat restoration program that's doing everything from, you know, helicopter wood loading projects to entire, you know, stream channel restoration, uh, a lot of off-channel habitat work for coho salmon. Um, and then we have a, a fire and fuels program, which is, you know, involved kind of at the grassroots level of doing the the brushing and burning on the ground 
organizing events like the prescribed fire training exchanges, all hands, all lands burning, family-based burning, as well as, um, you know, fire policy issues, you know, because the reality is that, you know, we have to address fire in its totality, you know, the social, ecological, economic, and cultural aspects of fire all at once if we're going to manifest the change that, that we need to make right now. Absolutely. And um, one of the many reasons I reached out to you in, in particular was because I had seen you on that webinar and you had mentioned um, in a question about the challenges that you guys are facing and implementing better fire resiliency, you had mentioned about, or you had mentioned liability and how we deal with liability. And I'd never really thought about this, but you said the cards are stacked against fire, uh, prescribed fire, whereas wildfire has almost no liability issues. And I would just, I would love it if you could just elaborate on that a little bit more or just the challenges in general of, of implementing some of these policies. Yeah, you know, the, the reality is that I can see clearly why federal and state fire managers choose the fire suppression model for managing fire because there's literally virtually no liability to that model. And you actually can get a lot of good work done, which I'm sure, you know, you're a firefighter, you know, you've been on those wildfires where, um, you know, like I was with the red salmon complex this year, you know, we did a 400 acre burnout under a thick inversion uh, and brought good fire down to homes, uh, you know, before an east wind event came in. And it was, for all intents and purposes, a prescribed burn but we didn't have to get a smoke permit. And of course we never would have got a smoke permit because you know, the, the, the air was already super smoky. Uh, we didn't have to get any environmental compliance, which sometimes takes years. Uh, you know, we didn't have to pay for anything because you know, the resources you know, fall from the sky when you have a suppression and you know, it's basically unlimited. So uh, you know, all the things that that we um, have to struggle with in the prescribed fire world are, you know, are non-issues in, in the wildfire world. And so unfortunately, you know, there's this, you know, everybody's accusing the Forest Service of the big box burn. And that's kind of where that comes from is, you know, they're like, hey, we, we know we need to get fire on the ground. Let's make a bigger box and get fire on the ground. But unfortunately, that means fire comes back in the very heat of summer. And, and the, the ecological impacts and the social impacts, you know, all this gray hair here is related to, you know, sucking in four months of extreme wildfire smoke. You know, my whole life, pretty much every, every other summer is a horrible smoke year out here. So, um, you know, we, there's uh, a lot of reform that needs to happen with fire suppression. Uh, and, and our current state and federal fire management strategy. And, and I would just say, you know, I, I'm finally optimistic for the first time in about 25 years of beating my head against that wall that we're going to see some real change, you know, because of the catastrophic losses in the last few years. I want to offer a brief explanation of what Will means when he says a big box burn. Uh, this is a tactic used in wildland fire suppression where instead of maybe cutting a fire off on a road and using a burnout to burn out the fuel between that road and the main fire front, uh, maybe instead you box it out with a road that's a little farther out, two, three miles, sometimes less, um, and you're creating essentially a box out of fire line, whether those are dozer lines, 
hand lines less likely, but sometimes hand lines and, uh, and, and forest service roads. These are often done in areas where values at risk are limited. So we're not dealing with houses or infrastructure or anything like that. Um, and oftentimes the conditions have to be very right in terms of wind, temperature, and red flag warnings and things like that. Once the Boxton area is decided upon, then wildland firefighters can create buffers with, uh, with burnouts using drip torches and things like that. You're creating a, an essentially a, a buffer between the road and the approaching front. And then you just kind of let fire do what it does. And having those buffers in place on dozer lines, hand lines, and roads will ideally prevent any sort of slopovers or anything from getting out of control. This tactic is really useful when it comes to uh, burning more acreage and managing wildfires for these sort of prescriptive purposes. Hope that clears things up for those who don't know what a big box burn is, and we will get back to Will now. Is it the big destructive fire seasons that we're having that are making you hopeful just because it's just getting more publicity or what's actually like been the impetus for you to feel more hopeful about, about all this? Well, I think it's forced uh, state and federal fire managers and politicians to take a clear look at the failings of our current fire suppression policy. You know, it's, it's clear that it's not an act of God, you know, when it happens over and over again. It's, you know, that it's, it's not fair that we can, you know, apply for these exceptional events where that smoke just gets disappeared off the books from wildfires, even though communities like ours, you know, my kids are sucking that smoke every summer when they come home. And that's a huge health impact that doesn't exist on paper, but it exists in the real world. So, so many, and you know, the, the ever rising costs, including, you know, the loss of life and property, the loss of ecosystems, um, everything that stems from fire suppression has got to this point where, you know, enough people in society are saying what went wrong and how do we fix it? And what would that re reform look like for you? Uh, I know that's a huge question and a huge problem to solve, but it just in your perspective, um, what is that future going to look yeah. like? Yeah, well, you know, I think, you know, first and foremost, we just came out with a, a good fire paper that this Karuk Fire Policy Group uh, sponsored and Lanya and myself, Margo and Don Hankins and Bill Tripp and many other were, were part of that effort. Uh, working with a, a lawyer called Sarah, named Sarah Clark, who's done some great work in the field. And so I just encourage folks to look up that good fire paper because it's a snapshot in time right now about what, you know, where we can specifically tweak um, state uh, laws uh, and, and the culture of fire in California um, to evolve, you know, to, to where we need to be. And a huge piece of what we addressed in that paper is, you know, we need to empower our cultural fire keepers, you know, like Margot and Bill Tripp to, you know, lead the charge back to good fire. You know, and there's so many racist undertones to fire suppression. You know, if you look at history and go back to the first regional forester in California, S.B. Shaw, you know, he's, you know, basically shot down the light burners fallacy and, and, but admitted at the same time, you know, this is an experiment on the most incredible scale where we intend to make as dense and complete a crop of conifer trees as possible across all of this incredibly rich, you know, cultural landscape in California. And unfortunately, that's what we're dealing with. 
You know, we have these 80 to 100% closed canopy, mid-mature, dense fur stands that in the middle of August, you know, put, put a 30 mile an hour wind on them and there's no human force uh, that could stop that fire. And so we're basically at the whims of the wind. I know that's that's just once, you know, you, you asked me a very broad question, which is, you know, what are all the things we, we need to fix? Um, I mean, there's so there's so many aspects to it. You know, it's we need to hold our state and federal land managers accountable for managing for ignitions and not for fuels at the landscape scale. You know, right now the Slater fire that burned through Happy Camp and and killed several people and burned down hundreds of homes. Uh, you know, Pacific Power is getting sued because the fire lines arced and that was the proximal start of the fire. But if you look at the landscape of where that fire burned, it was the you know 30-year-old logging slash from the clear cutting after the 87 fires that was left on the ground so they could pay for the helicopter logging. And it was the, the patchwork plantation and you know fire exclusion in the Indian Creek watershed that caused the entire watershed to literally burn up in a in a 24-hour period, you know, over 90,000 acres. 40 mile an hour winds, 3% humidity. Um, it's a bad combination. And so I, I think really until people understand that, you know, we need to hold people accountable for mismanaging fuels. Um, and, and, you know, this one less spark philosophy is not gonna get us where we need to go. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to what I was hoping to touch on next, which is the sort of social side of this and getting communities on board and kind of reteaching people about the importance of fire after decades of kind of this, you know, I mean, the one less spark sort of campaign, right? Um, so if you could just talk a little bit about that idea of like, we are responsible for how our communities receive the idea of wildfire, if you could just speak to kind of what you guys are doing in that realm and what your objectives are in that realm. So here in the Klamath Mountains, you know, being on the southern range of the, you know, the Northwest Pacific, uh, you know, habitat, um, Pacific Northwest forests, um, you know, we have all the rain, we have all the growth, um, and and we've been starving those forests of fire for for a long time, and so the powder keg is set uh, to explode, and and in fact, it's been exploding here. Uh, more than other places throughout the West Coast. And so people in our communities along the Klamath River, it's been in their forebrain for the last 40 years or longer that, you know, what we're doing with managing fire here is 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 wrong and, and needs to change. And so in, in addition to that, we also have, uh, you know, these, these tribal cultures who have, you know, have you know persisted in implementing cultural burns at the point of a gun for 150 years, uh, and so that segment of our society already understands you know the value of fire um, towards shaping you know productive landscapes that we could actually live off out here. So those factors combined, I think, have given us a head start in a lot of communities in the West to start to you know connect our local people to fire management in a way that a lot of other places don't, aren't or don't. So the average understanding of fire ecology, average understanding of how the you know, fire suppression mechanism works, 
um, is much higher uh, with, with folks that are out here. So just an example of some of the programs that have come out of that are our community liaison program, which, you know, basically we got tired of, you know, these fire teams coming in from Florida or Pennsylvania have no idea what's going on in this landscape and start, you know, mansplaining to us, you know, how, how we need to uh, get out of the way so they can save us. And finally, we got to the point of where, you know, we're like, no, wait a minute, you know, a lot of folks here have worked for the Forest Service, have done fire suppression, you know, have worked in fire and seen fire and defended their homes and understand how fire moves across the landscape. We need to have a two-way discussion here. And so we created a system for, uh, you know, a local structure of organization where we had, you know, primary and then secondary community liaisons that would you know, provide uh, a single face of, uh, you know, connection with the incident management team, but then connecting them to a, a huge, um, uh, you know, resource of uh, local knowledge to help manage those fires. And, and really, I think the key there is that, you know, when people understand why uh, fire managers are doing what they're doing, um, you can get to a shared understanding which builds mutual trust. And so at the end of a wildfire season, you know, the community isn't like, wait a minute, we just got screwed over. What just happened? You know, there's all this damage and this isn't what I want, which pits us against each other. You know, with the community liaison program, we can be that conduit to, you know, both bring information from the incident management team to the community in a way that they'll understand, you know, whether it's, you know, one of us jumping in the cop car when they're going around doing evacuations. You know, there's a lot of Vietnam vets out here that will, you know, come out guns blazing if they see a cop car, but if they see somebody they know jumping out of that cop car first, they're gonna hold off. So there's a lot of ways that, you know, we can start to care for our community uh, and show that, um, you know, we understand what they're going through. You know, one of the things that the tribe, the Karuk tribe has done is, by hundreds of HEPA commercial grade HEPA air filters that we distribute to elders in the community um, so that you know the wildfire impacts of smoke aren't so bad they have to leave their homeland um, and they give them to non-tribal members as well like my, my folks up the Salmon River so and then because they have this bank uh, and process for loaning out HEPA filters when it comes time for us to do prescribed fire you know, we can rent, you know, loan out those same HEPA filters for the smoke sensitive residents that might be impacted from our prescribed burns and you turn, you know, some of your uh, biggest detractors into some of your best allies because they feel cared for. In an, in an ideal world, what would like a fire resilient community look like in your perspective? Yeah, well, you know, the reality is that wildfires are, are doing the heavy lifting when it comes to fuels reduction in this country. And so the sooner we get to manage wildfire at the landscape scale, the better off we are to, you know, once the community feels safe, you know, a lot, you know, having fire managers, you know, choose to manage wildfires for resource objectives in the backcountry because we have solid fuel breaks around our towns. Uh, you know, the sooner we get to manage wildfire. And so we're working with Paul Hesberg and uh, Chris Dunn at Oregon State University and, and others to 
use the, the pods process, the potential uh, wildfire operational delineations. Basically, you know, it's where those fire sheds are that we want to, you know, prioritize, um, you know, building strategic fuel breaks so that we can both manage wildfire and also increase the, the amount of prescribed fire that we're doing at, at a meaningful scale. So kind of what that looks like in simple terms is, you know, going out from the community, you know, we've done that defensible space work right around the homes. And then when you get into the outer wooey, we've lined out these prescribed burn units that go a half mile or a mile up the hill, maybe to the nearest ridge or, or the nearest road that we are consistently keeping frequent fire on the landscape around our communities. So, um, you know, only thing that's stopping fires like the Slater fire is good black on the ground from recent wildfires, you know, and, and so really we need to recreate that around our communities so that we have the social license to, to manage wildfires for resource objectives. And so the, the pods model is an opportunity for us to, you know, communicate about, you know, well, what does the community feel is substantial enough fuels reduction for them to support manage wildfire? What do the agencies feel is substantial enough fuels reduction to support manage wildfire so that you know we stop putting out the wildfires that light at a time of year when we're seeing beneficial effects out there at the landscape. I'm, I'm curious, I guess what, um, after all the work that you guys have done, I'm curious what suggestions you have for other communities, especially as more and more communities become sort of wrapped up in I don't know, in, in fires, like uh, we have like, we have communities in central Oregon and the west side of the Cascades that are starting to experience more and more uh, fire seasons than, than they had in the past. And so just looking for maybe some suggestions that you've, so that you've learned along the way, lessons learned or otherwise um, for some of those communities that might be trying to build their own resiliency. You know, one of the things I think has been incredible from a grassroots level is that every three years we host uh, the Klamath Fire Ecology Symposium, which brings scientists, managers, cultural practitioners, academia, and the local community all together under one roof to talk about all those different facets of fire. And so we deal with fire in our totality, you know, not just one piece of, of fire protection or fire prevention or you know landscape scale fire management we're we're introducing people to all the facets of fire and bringing everybody up together you know that basic understanding i think you need a critical mass of people in your community that understand fire on your landscape and you know the socio political um, factors that that you know have made it what it is in order to come together and think of solutions, you know, because in the misinformation, the lack of information, you know, it's easy for state and federal managers to say, hey, I've got one person on one side saying, you know, no manage wildfire at all. And this person over here saying we need to just do everything, manage wildfire and put, you know, thicker siding on our houses. So I guess we'll just keep doing the same thing that we're doing, you know, so. <laughs> You know, what, the way we've um, overcome that is we uh, created the Western Climate Restoration Partnership, which, you know, was, was open and inclusive uh, using the open standards process um, and some really top-notch facilitation from the Nature Conservancy, Mary Huffman and Lynn Decker. 
came into our community for several years and, and we did a series of workshops where we kind of built that foundation of mutual understanding of fire in this landscape and how we can work together, you know, loggers, environmentalists, tribal members, state and federal fire agencies, you know, how we, you know, we at least we stopped, you know, fighting about what we disagreed with and we started working on the places that we agreed.